copy of the Bible today, I'd ask you to open up to the New Testament book of Philippians. The text will also be on the screen if you need it. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to begin in verse 5. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5, and today we're going to look at the Carmen Christi. The Carmen Christi. Now, most likely, even if you've spent your whole life in the church, you've probably never heard the phrase Carmen Christi. And that's because it is a term that scholars use, and most of the time we don't really listen to what uh, we don't really listen to what scholars say a whole lot sometimes. But scholars use that phrase to refer to this portion of scripture that we're going to uh, focus on today, and it means song of Christ. And they they call it the Carmen Christi, the song of Christ, because the text that we're going to look at today, this this little bit of Paul's letter to the Philippian Christians, was a very early uh, part of a very early uh, Christian hymn. So today we've sung hymns, we have a hymnal, we've, we've had the words up on the screen. Well, they didn't have projection screens and things like that. Of course, they didn't have a Baptist hymnal. But when the church body would gather together, when Christians would get together and worship Christ, they would sing songs. And, and what we're going to look at today is a quotation of one of those songs. Now, we don't know who wrote the song. Maybe it was Paul, maybe it was somebody else. But, but this is a very, very early piece of church music that delves into the nature of Christ. Now, you might, uh, you might remember from, uh, from last week that Paul, we've been going through this whole book of Philippians, and in our text last week, Paul quotes this, and he uses, uses Jesus as an example to the Philippians. He uses it as an example to us for how, sh- how we should act and behave. Now, I know that you just got set down, but if you would, please stand honor God's word. We're going to pick up in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, and read down to verse 11. Paul writes, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thank you. you. may be seated. Now, as we start to look at our text today, I think that the text naturally breaks down into three main parts, and they all start with the, with the letter E. The letter E. The first E that I, I want you to look at is, is found in verse 6, and that is eternity. Eternity. Paul starts out in verse 6 talking about Jesus before the incarnation. In fact, he talks about Jesus before the creation itself. In other words, he steps back into that timeless eternity before there was anything except God. Now, for, for me, I admit I have a small brain, and it's hard for me to comprehend some things, but for me, it's hard to imagine anything where time is not a factor. It seems like I'm always running out of time, I'm, I'm, I'm always late, I'm always doing this, that, and the other, and it seems like I never have enough time, but there was once a point when there was no such thing as time. Time is part of the creation itself, and God exists outside of time. He is timeless, and he is ageless. And, and before all that we see around us, there was God. The Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Whenever everything came into being, it came about because God was the one that did it. John in, in John chapter 1 and verse 1, talking about Jesus, referring to him as the Word, he says, in the beginning, when all this got started, was the Word, was Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
Now that's similar in language and idea to what Paul says in verse 6. He says, before Christ was born in Bethlehem, before the creation itself, Jesus existed in a, in a glorious state that he shared with the Father. In John chapter 17, it's, uh, we, it's what we call Jesus' high priestly prayer. He, he prays for, uh, for his disciples, he prays for us. And in John 17, 5, he references this, and he says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So before all this, Jesus existed, and he was glorious. Now, this is more of an aside than anything else, but, but there's, there are several views out there by, by different cults and other, uh, other religions that believe that Jesus is not God. They believe that he is, he is a created being, that, that, that Jehovah or, or whoever they term God to be, that, that, they, that, that this deity created Jesus. But that's wrong. I mean, you can see it plain as, as uh, black words on a white page. Jesus is not created. Some people say, well, Jesus became divine at his baptism or some other point in his earthly life. But Jesus has always been. And notice what Jesus says, or what Paul says about Jesus during that time. He says in verse 6, although he existed in the form of God. He existed in the form of God. Now this word form is critical to understand correctly if we're going to understand this text. Because this Greek word, the, the, the language this, the, Bible, the New Testament was originally written in was Greek, and the Greek word that we get our word form from, it's used three times in the Bible, two of which are in our text today. So it's not widely used. But the word has kind of a, a two-pronged two thrust that go hand in hand. One part of this, this, the Greek word is morphe, one part of this has the idea of an outward appearance of something. It speaks of that which is observed by the senses. So in the case of, of Jesus, it would be talking about the glory that Jesus shared with the Father before the world began. The Bible says that God dwells in unapproachable light. So that, is, that, that speaks of his glory. You think about the Old Testament whenever um, both the tabernacle was, uh, was dedicated, when the temple was dedicated, what happened? The, the smoke filled the temple, and, and there was, uh, God's presence was manifest by, by a, a flame, and, and, and there's light, and there's this, the, they call it the Shekinah glory. And, and so we have this idea of, of light, of, of, uh, of just, you just can't even come near it. So that's one, one part of it. The second part of this speaks about the nature of a thing. In other words, its, a, its appearance reflects its actual nature. Have you ever been fooled by the way something looked? Maybe you went and you've gotten a car or a truck or a piece of equipment, and boy, it looked like something good, but you got a home that was a lemon. It wasn't what you thought it was. You had a friend that you thought, boy, that's a good friend. And then they've done something, and they weren't who you thought they were. And we've all had those times. And what this is saying is, this, this, this morphe, this form of God, it's not that Jesus just appeared to be divine. It's not just that he appeared to be glorious. He appeared that way because he was divine. He didn't just look like God. He was God. He is God. And likewise, in verse 7, it says that he took on the form, same Greek word, of a bondservant. He didn't just appear as a bondservant, but he really wasn't one. But rather, he has all the characteristics of one because that is his nature and his humanity. So here's, here's Jesus. Paul says, before everything was, 
Jesus existed in the form of God. He was, he was glorious. If, if you were in heaven, if, if you could have seen him, it, it would have been blinding light. Glorious. And not just because he's putting on a show, but because he is God himself. He is one with the Father. And that's why you'll notice at the end of verse 6 it says, He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, what created thing can be equal with God? And the answer to that is nothing. Nothing can be equal with God besides God. He is completely unique in all the universe. Now, when he says that he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, that word grasped is, again, it's a word that's not used hardly ever. But it has the idea of tenaciously holding on to something. Have you ever tried to get a cookie from the hand of a toddler? Well, they hold on to it, don't they? You can pull, and, and boy, you just, it's, it's just like tug of war. You can, I mean, you, you think about these things that we tenaciously hold on to. Sometimes maybe it's an idea or pride, whatever it is. And what this is saying is, even though he had all this glory, he did not tenaciously hold on to it. He didn't refuse to give it up. Even though he was, for eternity, abounding in glory, he was equal with the Father, he didn't see that glory as something to hold on to at all costs. If it was me, I think I would, wouldn't you? But Jesus didn't. Instead, the Bible says that he emptied himself, verse 7. Now, before we move on again, I want to highlight something because you might have conversations who don't, with people who don't believe that Jesus was or is fully God. Again, I want you to process this. John 17, 5, Jesus shared the Father's glory before the world began. Here he's in the form of God. He, he, he's, he has equality with God. And yet, Isaiah 42, verse 8, God says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. So in eternity, Jesus was divine. He possessed the fullness of deity. He shared in the Father's glory. That leads in verse 7 to the next E, and that is emptying. Verse 7 says he emptied himself. Now this, uh, this part of the text as well has caused a lot of discussion throughout the years. What does it mean that he emptied himself? We have to be careful here and, and, and understand that in trying to narrow down on what it does mean, sometimes it's good to just make a cut off and say these are things it doesn't mean. And so these are off the table. One of the things that it does not mean, and we know that, is that Jesus became less than God. That Jesus never became less than God. Now remember, we've talked in the past about God's immutability. That's a great big word that means that he doesn't change. He can't change. The Bible says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, finished through sentence, and forever. So Jesus did not become less than God when he emptied himself. So what does it mean when Paul says, verse 7, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant? He's saying that for a time, Christ's glory was veiled. Anybody ever grow up seeing pictures of Jesus where his head was glowing? That didn't happen. It's not that Jesus walked around at night and looked like a nightlight. That didn't happen because Jesus looked like any other man. Now, on the Mount of Transfiguration, what happened? He went up on the Mount of Transfiguration with some of his disciples, and he unveiled a little bit of that glory. 
But he didn't walk around glowing. He didn't have a halo over his head. Now that veiling, that concealing for a time, did that extinguish or cancel out some of his divine attributes? Did that, did that change him in some way? Well, I just want you to do this. When we go outside after service, I want you to look up in the sky. And most likely, if the end of service is like the beginning of service, you're not going to see the sun. Now, does that mean, because the clouds are veiling the sun, that the sun is somehow lessened? No. It means that it's concealing the clouds. You can't see it. Or it's concealing the sun. You can't see it clearly. And likewise, when Jesus took on these, the, these qualities of humanity, he veiled his glory. It didn't detract from his glory. It just hid it temporarily like clouds in front of the sun. Another way of looking at this, at this emptying, and this seems kind of ironic, but I want you to think about it. Jesus' emptying happened through addition, not subtraction. Think about that. You say, well, how can, if we think of something being emptied, we think of being less than. We think of subtraction. But his emptying consisted or involved addition. In other words, it, it involved the addition of human weaknesses. We see this in verses 7 and 8. What did that emptying look like? Look at verse 7 again. But he emptied himself, how? Taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man. The creator condescended to being nursed and cared for by the creation. The God that the Bible says is so powerful that nothing's too hard for him. Became hungry became thirsty, took a nap. Jesus did not become less than God, but, but, but neither was he less than fully human. He took on the, the form, same word as before, the, the form of a bondservant. Jesus was fully God and yet fully human. And that's one, of the, that's one of those deep mysteries of the faith. Jesus had two natures. We have one. But Jesus was fully God and fully man. He was the God-man. And the last E in our text is in verse 9. And here we see Christ's exaltation. So we have eternity, we have the emptying, and verse 9 we see his exaltation. Because he, was, he, he, he humbled himself, he, he took on the form of a bondservant, he took on our humanity except for the sin, he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Because of this, verse 9, for this reason also God highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that's everybody, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because of Jesus' perfect obedience to the, Father, to the Father's will, God highly exalted him. And the emphasis here is on his exaltation from humility to glory. And that's the way of God, isn't it? It's the, the, the cross before the crown. It's the humility before the exaltation. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he'll exalt you in due time. James 4, 10, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. That's not to say that you will become like Jesus in the sense that you'll become God, because that's not going to happen. But, but what I'm saying is, the way of God is humility before the exaltation. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
And it, it, it does seem, as, as we read through this text, it does seem that because of Jesus' humility and his suffering obedience, that he did receive an enhanced or increased exaltation from what he had before. Now, the Bible doesn't flush this out a lot, but it, it appears from our text that, that part of this increased exaltation, this increased glory that he had, has to do with the fact that he is the Messiah. He's not only exalted and praised as God, but he's also crowned with what some people have called messianic glory. He's the suffering servant now of Isaiah 53. That God lays the iniquity of us all on him. He's the one who suffers and dies and takes our place. And because of that, the Father bestows on him a name or a title. And what is the name or title that's given to him? The answer to that is Lord. One day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Nobody's going to escape that. Now listen, you'll either do it willingly in praise of your king, or you'll do it unwillingly in subjugation to your judge. Now there are a lot of people out there who reject that idea. They, they refuse to do it in this world, don't they? They stiffen their neck. They rebel against God. They all never do it, but one day, each of us will acknowledge Jesus is Lord. The question that we must determine in this life is how you're going to meet him. Will you today bow your knee to his lordship? The Bible says that Jesus commands all people everywhere to repent. That means you. Jesus commands you to repent to turn from your sin, to put your faith in him as Savior of your soul. And if you do that, he'll not cast you out. You'll find him a perfect Savior. But Christian, there's also a word in here for you too. Will you bow your knee to his lordship? Sometimes we think, well, I'm, I've gotten saved. I've, I've turned from my sin. I've, I've accepted his free gift of salvation. And that's it. I'm just going to do whatever I want. Or maybe we, we don't we're not that bold, but God lays something on our heart, calls us to an area of service, calls us, he, he points out some sin in our lives that, that we need to forsake, and then we start to kind of rebel, don't we? Well, I don't want to do that. If I do that, if, if I, what's going to happen if I am obedient in this area? What's going to happen if I answer this call to service? What's going to happen if? Maybe, maybe he keeps bringing a text of Scripture to mind, and you know it's because you're not doing what he tells you to do in that Scripture. Will you bow your knee to Jesus as Lord? Or maybe, maybe your issue is what Paul is addressing in our text today. Because Paul didn't write this as, as a, a treatise on the divinity and the humanity of Christ. Instead, he used it almost like a sermon illustration on the need for humility. That's what he says in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. He says, don't be, don't be doing things out of vain conceit. Don't be, don't be puffed up with pride. Don't be thinking about yourself only. Do, don't be doing all these things. But instead, have this attitude in, your, in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. We're supposed to be humble. We're supposed to put others first. We're supposed to have this mind in ourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Maybe that's your area. I want to have a time to, 
to, to respond to what God has said to us. So I'd like us to stand with every head bowed and every eye closed. Musicians to come forward. And just in the quiet of this time, I want you to consider what God has said to you through his word. This isn't my opinion. This isn't my coming up with something. This is what God has said in his word. Jesus the God-man stepped out of glory, took on the frailties of human flesh, that he might redeem those that share in that flesh. Jesus on the cross became our substitute. He became the one that took our place. He was put to death for our sin. If we'll put our faith in him, his righteousness, his, his, his perfect obedience to God's law is credited to us. So how's that happen? It happens by simple faith in Christ alone for salvation. People are not justified by works of the law, but by faith. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we are comfortable with the idea and the picture of Jesus, meek and mild, lying in a manger. We're not as comfortable with him as judge, but that's, that's part of the picture that we see in Scripture, that one day we'll stand before God, we'll stand before Christ, and he'll either bring us in to glory with, with, with himself, with you, with other believers. Or you'll say, depart from me, for I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. God, I pray that each of us here, before we leave today, will bow our knee to Jesus as Lord. And God, maybe there's somebody here who's, who's, She's got some questions or some things they're wrestling with. God, I pray that you would, would give them the answers they seek. Lord, I pray that you'd be with each of us as believers, that you would help us to be obedient to you, that we would bow our knee to your ongoing lordship. God, like Paul calls us to, I ask that you'd help us all to have Christ's attitude in our own lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. That's all.